The course of true love never did run smooth. If you're a hawk by day, your love is a wolf by night. If you are blind, your love is in a deep sleep. Curses. Sounds like it's time for episode 54 of Pop Art, a podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your out-of-my-way, you masters of 1,000 fleas host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, blogger and film enthusiast Jeanette Ward, who has chosen Richard Donner's medieval dark fantasy Lady Hawk. Well, I have chosen the Alexander Korda, Michael Powell, Tales of the Arabian Nights Sabu vehicle, the classic Thief of Baghdad. To begin, Jeanette, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Blogger and film enthusiast is very accurate. That's kind of what I do. I really enjoy watching movies. And then I started a blog to review what I watched. I always refer to myself as an unprofessional movie critic in that I really only write reviews of things that I want to see. I'm not one of those people who will watch everything. I tend to stay within my own wheelhouse, in my own comfort zone, which I think is why I appreciated your invitation to join you here because I knew you were going to suggest something most likely I'd never seen, if not ever heard of. So I was grateful for the opportunity. Well, great. And in return, you'll find out that I have never seen Lady Hawk until this podcast. So, Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen very often, I have to say, but every once in a while, four or five times, people have chosen films I haven't seen, which I very much appreciate, actually. So with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Lady Hawk. First, some information about the film. Lady Hawk is an American medieval fantasy released in 1985. It was directed and produced by Richard Donner and written by Edward Kamara, Michael Thomas, and Tom Makowitz. It stars Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Leo McKern, John Wood, Ken Hutchinson, Alfred Molina, Akili Kolshek, Levi, and Sasha as the Wolves, and Gift and Lady Hawk as the Hawks. Who played Goliath? Do you have a note on that? No. I'll maybe try and check it out as we go <laughs> In medieval Italy, a bishop falls in love with the nobleman's daughter, but she is in love with the captain of the guards. The bishop turns to the devil and the dark arts and curses the couple. The daughter will be a hawk by day, and the captain will be a wolf by night, never able to consummate their love. When the captain meets a thief who has escaped to the bishop's prison and heavily guarded city, he enlists the thief to help him get into the city and kill the bishop. But a priest tells them there might be a way to overturn the curse. Why did you choose this film? What a great question. I wanted to pick something that felt mainstream, but also a little edge of the mainstream. And from my sweet spots, being a child of the 80s, there was this glorious time of a few years in the mid 80s when fantasy movies were all the rage. And I think this was of the top four or five, maybe one of the ones that slips by unnoticed or gets forgotten more than some of the others. Labyrinth and Willow tend to be a little bit higher on the list. The Dark Crystal, any of the ones with Muppets in them. (laughs) I tend to get a little more notice. I think Lady Hawk has, I don't want to say more heart, but is more heart forward, while also being very, very 80s in that the score is some real rad synthesizer music. I have such fondness for this movie. The curse of the lovers, where they're always together but forever apart. Villainous bishop who's trying to keep them apart and the vengeful captain of the guard that's hunting them. Plus, the fantasy element, the medieval element, all the animal work in it, and Matthew Broderick being charming. (laughs) I think there's a lot to love in this movie. When did you first see it? 
probably the year it came out, if not in the theater, then certainly on VHS shortly thereafter. And what did you think upon first seeing it? I loved it. I still love it. The advantage <laughs> to it being kind of a period piece, you know, set in the medieval ages of Italy, is it still holds up as a fantasy romance. I saw it for the first time this week. <laughs> I can't remember why I didn't see it when it came out. I suspect seeing Matthew Broderick as a medieval thief didn't quite interest me. It also got mixed reviews. Yes. <laughs> so I do know that Ebert and Siskel had good things to say about it, but for some reason it just didn't interest me. I don't think most of the fantasy films at that time really interested me that much, so that's probably one of the reasons I just wasn't really into that. Well, that's legitimate. Yeah, upon seeing it, it certainly has some very positive aspects to it. I certainly think it has a great idea of this curse being the woman is the hawk by day, mm-hmm. man is the wolf by night. They are always together, but they can never do anything about their love for each other. And this sort of thing is one of the classic elements of so many myths and famous fantasies. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the aspect of the sword and sandal elements that you'll get with Arnold Schwarzenegger and things of that nature. But <laughs> if you go back to Wagner and the Greek and the Roman myths are constantly about two lovers who, for whatever reason, are cursed and mm-hmm. can together. The line that Rucker Hauer says about, did you know that wolves and hawks both mate for life? So we couldn't even have that. They're eternally bonded to each other. It's such a throwaway line. I think the other thing that carries, it's hokey on one level, but the performances of both Michelle Pfeiffer and Rucker Hauer as the leads are very sincere and very genuine. You kind of get sucked into the story. Where Matthew Broderick was there mostly for comedy relief. What are some of your favorite scenes? Anytime Matthew Broderick is not quite narrating, but really speaking to God, I have found myself saying the phrase, no offense, but I talk to God all the time and he's never mentioned you. I love that phrase. I use it a lot. He's so engaging. I love the settings. Honestly, I should have looked up where it was shot. It was shot in Italy. Looks fantastic. It's absolutely beautiful. They first, I believe, tried Czechoslovakia, Mm -hmm. but the communist government at the time wouldn't let them shoot there. It wasn't the filming hotspot that it is now. (laughs) (laughs) I find Rutger Hauer to be beautiful in this movie, more so than I've ever found him in anything else. Really charming. His whole goal for the majority of the beginning of this movie is vengeance. That's it. I'm angry that I'm in this curse. I'm going back to kill the bishop, period. He collects Philippe because... I need to get back into the city so I can kill him. Love that. I love, it's a little weird, but Philippe breaking out of the prison in the beginning, crawling through the sewers as he continues to talk to God constantly. Basically a narration for the sake of the audience. The first scene where he encounters Michelle Pfeiffer, where they're staying with the woodcutter and his wife in the woods, is odd and mythic and weird. And she tells him he's dreaming and then he's not. That whole sequence is lovely. And then the bit where once they encounter the priest and they go back and they dig a hole (laughs) and attempt to keep the hawk and the wolf in it so they can have this split moment where they can almost touch as they're both transforming him out of being a wolf into a man and her from a woman back into being a bird. That sequence is lovely. And then the finale. The big fight scene at the end. Well, I certainly agree with much of what you say. It's a very beautiful film to look at. It's gorgeously shot. The cinematographer is one of the great cinematographers, certainly of the modern period or of that period. It's Vittorio Storaro. He's an Italian cinematographer, most famous for 
The Conformist and winning Oscars for Apocalypse Now and The Last Emperor. He also won another Oscar, but he is one of the great, great cinematographers of all time. And I think it certainly shows. It is a very beautifully shot movie. I also like the scene where they do see each other as humans for that very tiny amount of time, which only makes their anguish worse. I love almost any scene John Wood and Leo McCarran are in. I think they probably give the best performances in the movie. Yeah. Uh, movies like this often have a very interesting and strong supporting cast, including Alfred Molina, who I think I kept saying, where is Alfred Molina? <laughs> and I think I finally recognized him. Yeah, he's almost unrecognizable in this. Yes. You were talking about Matthew Broderick, Mouse, or Philippe, just constantly talking to God. And I do think that's one of the interesting things about this movie. It's the sort of thing that people would not necessarily pick up on or talk about. But it's very much a part of its time when it comes to religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mouse talks to God. The church has a great deal of power. But Mouse really doesn't expect God to interfere. He talks to him, but he doesn't really expect him to do anything. Yeah, Talking to him is just what he does, and he thinks God's there, but, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't, but he doesn't really expect And the church is very, very corrupt. And this, in many ways, was the prevailing view to a large number of people at the time. Organized religion was no longer at the forefront of people. They didn't really worship God in the same way or expect the same thing at the church. In the 30s and 40s, there was a theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Germany, who was killed because he was against the German government. Oh. He had this idea where he basically says that God exists, but we must act as if he doesn't. Mm. In other words, God exists, but he's not going to stop the concentration camps. We're going to have to do that. And that's sort of malice in many ways, I think. I like it because it's such a casual and conversational relationship to God. As you point out, he's not really expecting God to participate in the conversation, but it is the way he continues his relationship to God that I really appreciate. Constantly chit-chatting with him. And again, like I said, it almost functions as narration to the movie. Well, it does. That's a very good point. You mentioned John Wood as the bishop. His performance is on the level of true evil characters in some of the 80s fantasy movies. He is spectacular. And the costume is doing a lot of the work. The scene where he's feeding the dancer as if she was a bird in his garden. And then the whole final sequence when Michelle Pfeiffer walks up and drops her leather things that you put on a hawk's feet to signify the curses over. They've broken it and they're done. And then when he, vibrating with rage, stands up and says, if I can't have her, no man shall. Exceptional villainous performance. You mentioned the costumes. And yes, John Wood dresses in white. Ritger Howard dresses in black and Michelle Pfeiffer is often in a black cloak. They reverse how villains and heroes are often dressed. Yeah. There are some interesting aspects to the screenplay and the filmmaking as a whole. They're trying to be a bit postmodern in this and the use of the music and I think mainly in Philippe's or the mouse's character. First of all, the music is, as people say, the most divisive aspect of the film. Mm -hmm. 
A lot of people like it. A lot of people say this is the main issue with the film. It is the weakest aspect of the film. How do you feel about the music? It's interesting because as I was watching the other movie, I was jotting down notes and one of them that I wrote was score. <laughs> the score is always tricky because if you only notice it if it's real terrible or very good, right? point of the score is simply to enhance the emotion of the scene, not really to be noticed for itself. And in this movie, the majority of it is these insane 80s synthesizer, which does not fit with the 1300s vibe of the movie. It does feel incongruous. It doesn't bother me. It's not a thing I love. I don't think they quite pull it off. There you go. That's a good way to put it. I can understand why they tried to do it. As I said, they're trying to be a bit postmodern here. I actually sometimes think, and it's hard to say, it's not so much the music, though I think it might be problematic no matter what. I think the sound recording isn't very good. It doesn't sound quite right. And I suppose it's not surprising this was filmed in Italy. They might have used Italian filmmaking methods. And so often in so many Italian films, their post-dubbing isn't particularly great. But I'm not sure. Maybe they didn't find the right tune. (laughs) Or maybe they tried to push it too hard. But yes, I don't think they quite pulled it off. I'm also not convinced they quite pulled off Matthew Broderick's dialogue. Or rather, Matthew Broderick couldn't quite pull off the dialogue. Because his accent, for one thing, is fairly incongruous. All over the place. (laughs) Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Did it need to be there? No, but they should have committed one way or the other. But it's a New York accent, and and there's someone who said that, unfortunately, at times, he comes across as what is one of the greatest quotes you have if you want to talk about a bad accent in film, and that is Tony Curtis's accent in The Black Shield of Falworth, where he says, Yonder is the castle of my father. (laughs) And I do think Roderick does sometimes come a bit too close to that. But it's hard to say whether it's the accent and he just can't quite pull it off. Because sometimes I think he has the right character and he has the right line readings. And tone. His tone is almost unique to his character in this movie. Everyone else is a little more serious. He's the one who's a a little more off the cuff, a little more comedy, a little more silly. But everybody else is playing it very straight. Which may be another reason why he doesn't quite pull it off. Because it is tonally not quite the same. But again, they're trying to be a bit postmodern. And I have seen movies where they try to use a very modern way of speaking and use of language in period films mm-hmm. that can work very very well a very more conversational instead of being shakespearean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was one part of the screenplay that did bother me okay i don't know why leon mckern just didn't tell rooker hour there's an eclipse coming that's why we're going to have both day and night at the same time Exactly where are we in terms of timeline and science and understanding? Well, he knew there was an eclipse coming. And yes, at that time, you could probably, if you were a scientist, yeah, you knew when there were going to be an eclipse. Yeah. Instead of getting all like, oh, I've been given a vision and there's a prophecy and it'll be a day without a night and a night without a day. And you can confront the bishop to, listen, just tell us exactly what's happening and what we need to do. (laughs) Right. I could have misheard or missed something, but I didn't think that he was doing it because he had this vision. I think he did it because he knew there was an eclipse coming now exactly why that would solve the curse and not only that you had to be in front of the bishop when it happens (laughs) he's got to look at both of you it's a bit arbitrary listen curses Uh, are complicated breaking them it's very complicated (laughs) you only get one shot you got to do it right but what did you think of the screenplay? It had three people who wrote it. Edward Kamara had the main idea and the main story. 
but it was also uh, contributed to by Michael Thomas and then Tom Mankiewicz. So it's one of those films that had all these contributors yeah. to it. At least for me, I didn't really notice too much choppiness as a result of that. Sometimes you can tell when there is more than one screenwriter because it feels choppy or it feels like a bunch of different ideas stuck together. This feels fairly smooth. It's certainly very difficult to write a fairy tale and make it make sense. I think the secret to that is keeping it fairly simple. And I feel like this, for the most part, keeps it fairly simple. They fell in love. The bishop got angry. He cursed him. And adding too many complicated side pieces or too much extra stuff is what can really take away from it. Of those three writers, Michael Thomas was the most interesting of them. He wrote the most interesting movies. Edward Kamara didn't actually do very many. Also is known for Enemy Mine and Dragon. Tom McEnwitz is probably best known for Diamonds Are Forever, The Man with the Golden Gun, Live and Let Die. He also didn't write a huge number of films. But Michael Thomas, before Lady Hawk, wrote The Hunger. And then after Lady Hawk, really didn't do very many big films and tended to write more, I'm not sure anybody would call them personal films, but they're not big studio-type films. And he did Scandal and Backbeat, The Devil's Double, Welcome to Whoop Whoop, which was a weird movie in Australia about a man who gets stuck in this town called Whoop Whoop where no one can ever leave. That's a great title. And most recently he did The 33 about the Chilean miners. You did mention something about fantasies and fantasy films. I want to talk about that more when we get to the other film. But I do feel also that fantasy often works better if there's some sort of metaphor to it. Sure. And here it's a movie, as so many fantasy stars, about two lovers who can't get together. That happens a lot in life. It's very hard to get together with someone. And this, being a wolf by day and a hawk by night, is a metaphor for all these individual things that we have that can get in the way of getting together with someone. Mm -hmm. That if you only find a way to clear them and get rid of them, we're all cursed in some way from when we're born. And as we grow up, we get these negative aspects about each other that can get in the way. And how do you work through Mm -hmm. these differences in order to find true love? How do you put the work into a relationship to make it function? And they put a lot of work into this relationship. My goodness, yes, they do. (laughs) Rutger Hauer, I always thought was an interesting actor in a way. I think, personally, his career was not what it should have been. Interesting. It went, in many ways, the same way that Barbara Verhoeven's film career went. Rutger Hauer was a Dutch actor who did start out acting in Verhoeven films. He did Turkish Delight and Katie Tipple, Spetters, Soldier of Orange, and then he went to Hollywood the same as Verhoeven did and really made an interesting, to me, movie after that. Certainly did some that people know about, Blade Runner, even Lady Hawk has a very strong cult following, and The Hitcher, but generally speaking, I don't, in the 80s, 90s, or whatever, said, oh, there's a Rutger Hauer film opening. I want to see it. Turkish Delight and Soldier of Orange and Spetters are and quite possibly the best films he ever did, quite possibly the best films Paul Verhoeven did. Verhoeven came to the U.S. and started doing things like RoboCop. <laughs> I was trying to think of another film that I could easily come up with off the top of my head where he is the leading man, where he is the love interest, where he is the guy. And I could not come up with one easily. Well, I think I read that to some degree that was his decision. Mm -hmm. That after Blade Runner and even Lady Hawk, he could have tried to become a movie star. And I admire the fact that he didn't try to become a movie star. That's fine. But he didn't seem to really replace it by making interesting movies. I will say towards the end of his career, where he's popping up in bit pieces here and there he always seemed to be having more fun than everyone else around him like batman begins he's playing the corporate bad guy but my goodness does he seem to be having a really good time and everyone else is oh this is, we're very serious we're remaking batman he's in there didn't you get the memo <laughs> you 
he's also had a stretch of a couple episodes of Smallville, maybe three or four, where he played Morgan Edge. He seems to genuinely be a guy who established a niche and then was perfectly happy working here and there, paying some bills, doing whatever, but he seemed at peace with the decisions he had made in regards to his career. He became what I guess we often call a working actor. Yes. You know, that's fine. I just think he had more to him. Are you a fan of Richard Donner? I will say that the majority of the Richard Donner movies I have seen, I'm fine with. I don't think that I'm jumping up and down about Richard Donner, but I certainly enjoy the majority of the things that I've seen. Of course, the Superman 1 and 2 are great for their type of movie. I like Scrooge. I like Lethal Weapon. I think that did a lot for establishing the 80s buddy action movie genre. Lethal Weapon has formed a blueprint for a lot of other things since then. Most recently in particular, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which the showrunners were very clear about, like, no, we're making a Lethal Weapon style show here. I also liked Assassins, which is kind of a lesser seen one, which was a little bit weird. So yeah, I like the majority of the stuff that he's done that I have seen. I think he's a very solid director. Be what I would call a very good studio director. I don't think he has a particularly personal style. Right, yeah. I can't look at his movies and attribute something to him. He's not Guillermo del Toro, where I have a list of five things where if you tell me it's a del Toro movie, I know these five things will be in this movie. He did some more interesting ones, Inside Moves, which is about veterans, and then a movie that wasn't well-received at the time, though I loved it, Scrooged. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. With Bill Murray. And we were talking about Rutger Hauer. I was also going to bring up Matthew Broderick. Have you seen many of his? Are you a fan of Matthew Broderick? Same type of thing. What I've seen him in, I enjoy. Of course, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is one of my favorites. The one that I like him in that is kind of a surprise and I feel like gets overlooked is The Freshman, which I really enjoy. That's an absolutely hysterical movie. I'm not sure exactly what happened to his career. I mean, he's had a very successful it, he career. Broadway. He shifted it back to stage, didn't yeah, he? he went back to stage. And I often wondered why he did decide to go back to stage. It could be things like he did Godzilla and Inspector Gadget and... <laughs> <laughs> But he's had a very solid career. But yes, we don't really think of him as a movie actor since he was very young, which a lot of people do prefer stage to movies. Movies, they say, are the director's medium, the director and the editor. The TV shows are the writer's medium. The stage is the actor's medium. So if you are really acting for acting's sake, the stage is where you can do that and get the immediate reaction from the audience. Lady Hawk was not a success, and it's often, even out of the fantasy films made at the time, not mentioned a lot, though it has a very strong cult following. Why do you think it didn't do well at the box office, or why it didn't break out? Well, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure. Some of the other ones, Labyrinth and Willow and Dark Crystal and those, they were a little more kid-friendly. This isn't anti-kid, but there are definitely the theme of these lovers are kept apart is teenagers and older, so you don't really get the kid audience there. Plus, there's some genuinely scary moments as well in this. So I feel like it's maybe finding the correct target audience had something to do with them. And coming out around the same time as some of those others that were definitely more kid-friendly. I think that's a very good point, that it was mainly meant for adults and even things like Conan the Barbarian were much more popular with teens and Mm -hmm. young people. What teen wants to go see a petty fantasy about star-crossed lovers that Mm -hmm. are 15, 20 years older than they are? And Matthew Broderick, it's hard to say whether his casting would have helped 
bring people in. He had only made one really hit movie, and that was War Games. Mm-hmm. It's so big a hit that he was able to ask, I think, for $750,000 or one quarter of the budget to make this film. Wow. But I'm not sure he's really someone who would bring the audience in. And Rutger Hauer was a supporting actor and still fairly unknown. Nobody knew who Michelle Pfeiffer is, and she mm-hmm. was reluctant to even take the part because... She was having problems in Hollywood and getting good parts because she was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. She didn't know whether she wanted to play a part that seemed to be more based on the beauty of mm-hmm. the character, though she read the script and then decided to do it. And it's very interesting because one of her best performances is in Le- Liaison's Dangerous, where she plays a woman who at one point says, I knew I was going to be punished for how beautiful I was. <laughs> so that didn't really have a cast. I mean, it certainly didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're not really selling this on the names. With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $20 million to make and made $18.4 million at the box office, so it did lose money. It was a disappointment, though it has grown a cult following since then. It was nominated for two Academy Awards in the categories of Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Sound. It won neither. This was the year of Back to the Future and Out of Africa. Those were two of the big films that year. Tom Mackiewicz, who was one of the three authors, is the son of Joseph Mackiewicz and the nephew of Herman Mackiewicz. Leo McKern, who played the priest, is probably best known for playing Rumpel of the Bailey and being the last number one on the TV series The Prisoner. Mm. Kurt Russell was cast as the captain originally, but he pulled out during rehearsals. So Howard uh, took over that part. And you can see Matthew Broderick and John Wood together in another film, and that is War Games. Warner Brothers falsely marketed this movie as being based on a true medieval legend. Screenwriter Edward Kamira took the issue to the Writers Guild of Association and was awarded a cash settlement from Warner Brothers, but the medieval legend claim wasn't dropped. So the basic idea and the basic story was totally Edward Kamara's. It does feel like it could be based on a real legend. (laughs) Yes, it's an excellent idea. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Thief of Baghdad. First, some information about the movie. The Thief of Baghdad is a British Technicolor fantasy film released in 1940. It was produced by Alexander Korda and directed by Michael Powell, Ludwig Berger, and Tim Whelan, with additional contributions from William Cameron Menzies and the Korda brothers Vincent and Sultan. It was written by Lejor Biru and Miles Mallison, who is also in the movie, and inspired by tales from A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. It stars Conrad Veidt, Sabu, June Duprez, John Justin, Rex Ingram, Miles Mallison, Morton Selton, Mary Morris, Alan Jeeves. The story takes place in ancient Basra. The evil Grand Vizier wants to rule and tricks his Sultan into disguising himself as one of his people and walking among them. The Grand Vizier then arrests him. In prison, a thief helps him escape. They go to another city where the Sultan falls in love with the Caliph's daughter, but the Grand Vizier wants her for his own. He turns the Sultan into a blind man and the thief into a dog. Meanwhile, the princess falls into a deep sleep, and the sultan and the thief break the spell and rescue the princess. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? Once I watched this version of The Thief of Baghdad, which the 1924 Douglas Fairbanks version is available on Amazon Prime, but this 1940 version (laughs) is available on HBO Max, so for anyone who's looking to find it. Once I started watching it, I very clearly could see why you chose to pair them. It makes sense. They both follow a young thief who stumbles across a story of lovers torn asunder now trying to get back together and the adventures within. I was impressed by your ability to pair (laughs) something 
that could have been very difficult to do. I found that very interesting. I could see the parallels and it was certainly not a film I was familiar with, not one I had heard of. But once I started watching it, it of course feels very familiar. The story has been made several times and you can start to see some of the pieces of the Disney version of Aladdin in it. In particular, from the animated version, the design of Jasmine's father... The cartoon version looks pulled directly from this movie. This is not something I ever would have come across without you suggesting it. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. It felt too long. It's barely over an hour and a half, but man, did it feel long to me. (laughs) But again, it certainly felt of its time. A lot of the effects, I I feel like we're pretty good for a movie from 1940. Cast was engaging. More diversity in the extras than I was expecting from a movie for 1940. You did mention the original Thief of Baghdad from 1924. I actually would have chosen that one over this one, except that the stories didn't quite parallel as well. In the 1924 version, the thief and the lover are both the same person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In this version, they break the two apart. Yeah. And that's why the story parallels Lady Hawk a lot more. And you're right. It is a huge influence on Aladdin, and not just with the father, but with the evil... Jafar. uh, Same name. The monkey is Abu. Yes. And is based on the character, the thief, played by Sabu. I'm not sure they were purposely being insensitive racially, but the idea that Sabu, who was an actor from India, he could be the same character as a monkey. I mean, he was a dog for half of the movie. So in Disney's Aladdin, yes, the thief and the prince-to-be are the same characters. So having him have a sidekick named Abu works well as a parallel to this. I'm going to assume that you have a ton of details on Sabu's career as an actor. They definitely hype him up like, oh, I'm starring. Sabu! There were more songs in this than I was prepared for. Occasionally someone will burst into song. Yes, let's get to other things first, but those are things we will cover. Apparently you just recently saw the films, and you did say you thought it was a little long, or not a little long, you thought it was long. It feels long, even though it isn't. Is that how you feel about the movie overall? It was enjoyable. It's definitely watchable. feels long because parts of it drag, but I think that's typical of movies of the era. I think there's other reasons why it is a little slow. I don't think it feels long to me, but I think I agree with you that it does drag at times, and I Mm -hmm. think that's in the structure and the screenplay, which we'll get into. I first saw it, I think it had to have been in college, I'm sure. And I did enjoy it very much. I don't think, as I said, I can argue with you that it is slower, perhaps, than it needs to be. But I also thought it was very enjoyable at the same time. looks great. Mm -hmm. The the special effects, which we'll talk about, are state-of-the-art at the time and highly influential. Do you have some favorite scenes? I don't know if it's a favorite scene when Abu has to fight the giant spider. I found that very entertaining. I like the appearance of the genie Rexing Room. He stole every scene he was in just by Mm -hmm. big over-the-top giant genie. The bit about where Apu is trying to talk with him and they do the superimposed and we'll talk about the effects, but the big foot, I love that. I thought that was great. But at the end, I'm still a little lost as to where those old guys came from out of the rocks. Did I miss some? No, they just come out of the rocks. They're just guys. No, Um, yeah, you didn't miss anything and I will mention that, yes. (laughs) 
a flying carpet. I love that he gets a flying carpet, and I love that the end, after successfully helping the lovers reunite, the Sultan, God love him, is like, Hey, Enabu, we will give him the best education, and he will become knowledgeable about it. And all these, like, wait, where'd he go? And he's flying away on his magic carpet and waving to the crowd as he leaves. I was like, that's great. That's that's exactly what you need. The perfect end. I certainly agree with a lot of that. I do love the genie. Rex Ingram, as you say, does steal those sections of the movie. I like the rescuing of the eye. I like the whole scene of going up, getting that eye, and yes, fighting the spider. And I also like the ending where the Grand Vizier takes off on the horse, and mm-hmm. Sabu shoots him with the arrow. And when Dead he falls, between the eyes. Well, what? you don't have to be a good shot because the crossbow will always hit its target. That's part of the description of the crossbow. It can be the worst shot in the world. It gets him right between the eyes. And what I liked is when he falls, the horse falls apart yes. into its toy parts it's very imaginative it uses a lot of special effects and myths the magical and fantasy elements are very well incorporated but i do think that when it does come to this screenplay it was written by they host bureau and miles malison who are both very good writers but i also read somewhere that they didn't really have a complete screenplay Sometimes I got the feeling they were sort of making it up as they went along. There are parts of it that feel like a collection of vignettes. Right. Couldn't tell if that was part of movies of that era or... I think it is one of the reasons why the film drags. For example, you have things like the princess falls into a deep sleep. Well, that happened off screen. It happens off screen, yeah. (laughs) Princess is sleeping. What? Why? And how? Where did that come from? And you're right. At the very end, he breaks the eye of the idol. And that is what's supposed to bring that old man to him. But it's like... Well, how do we get them out of this gem? Oh, I know. Let's have a genie in a bottle. Literally stumbles across the genie on a beach. He doesn't even have to go into a magic cave and find him. Nope. How do we get him out of this? Well, we'll have him break the eye, and then this old man will appear who will basically a deus ex machina, who will send them on his way. To his credit, the old man tries to explain it. Like, oh, we are the elders, and we live here in the rocks until someone smashes the eye. And I found myself going, I have so many more questions. I think I did keep expecting Sabu to say, wait, who are you? And where did you come? (laughs) And was this whole city of tents here the whole time? So I think the screenplay, I think it's a bit clunky. Yes, that's a good word for it. And so I think because of the clunkiness... It does get in the way of of as strong a build as it could have. The original 1924, my memory of it, and I saw it about maybe five or six years ago, is that the plotting was much more focused. Another problem also, I don't think that John Justin, who plays the prince, and Jean Duprez, who plays the princess, are particularly bad, but they're not the most... Zero chemistry. But it's also the thing of, oh, I've seen you one time, I now love you forever and can't live without you. You saw her one time, riding on a painted elephant, and now you can't live without her. Yeah, you know. Well, in myths, looks are very important. That's the way it goes. That's right. The value of a woman is often how beautiful she is then when you try to marry them there are other things that tend to be more important like how many toys can you give her father in order to buy her <laughs> oh yeah that was, that, was, that was a wonderful scene when he shows off his toys and he's this there were a couple of scenes that could have used some editing that was one the spider fight was another who were those green monster guys running around in that temple well, they could they protect the eye but they sure didn't they didn't do anything they could have been edited out completely so you know a couple of scenes I think John Justin is a bit better than June Duprez. Originally, Alexander Corder wanted Vivian Lee in the part, but Vivian Lee left for California with her soon-to-be husband, Lawrence Olivier. Then Vivian Lee got cast in 
Gone with the Wind, and that was that. And both of them, I think, really went back to mainly doing stage work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Michael Powell is really the main director. It did start out with Ludwig Berger, who was a European director who came to Britain and worked with Korda on a lot of films. Alexander Korda did what you might often call prestige films, intelligent films, art films of the time, things like The Private Life of Henry VIII. Mm. Rembrandt, things like that, and Ludwig Berger worked with them on a lot of those, but they didn't get along on this. Ludwig Berger wanted a different kind of story. He wanted something black and white, he wanted something more intimate, and it wasn't what Alexander Porter wanted. So he started bringing in Michael Powell to direct and started undermining Ludwig Berger. Berger and Corda didn't really work much together after that. Then World War II broke out in the middle of filming. Mm. So they had to move everything to the U.S. That was the only way they could get financial backing. That's why if you see some of those scenes at the end, that's the Grand Canyon. I literally said to myself while watching this, did they suddenly transport to the American Southwest? Yes. The typical Arizona, Utah, Colorado, red and gold, stripy rock desert. It's very distinctive, and it looks very unique, and you know exactly where it is. Then at that point, William Cameron Menzies and the Quarter Brothers helped bring it to an end. Though one of the problems was that it took so long to get it to America and start shooting again that Sabu grew three inches. Mm. So they had to shoot a lot of his earlier scenes over again. I don't know if you've seen many Alexander Korda films. No. He's a very important producer from the 1930s. He opened his own studio in Britain. He came from Europe and was having a tough time for a long time, but finally started making films that were catching on. And he did a lot of, as I said, prestige films, often with Laurence Olivier, with Vivian Lee, and with Charles Lawton. He also did the science fiction film Things to Come, and perhaps his most important film is The Third Man. Then Michael Powell became a very important director. Have you seen many of his No. Films? He did films like Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, A Matter of Life and Death, Peeping Tom. He was highly influential in his day. His films are gorgeous to look at. They're oversaturated in color usually. I liked that about this. Super well, colorful. That wasn't unusual for the time because color was still being brought in and there were new ways of using color. Mm -hmm. uh, he made some very important films, films that film lovers and film critics, filmmakers were very, very influenced by. William Cameron Mincy is mainly known for being one of the great special effects creators, though he did direct one film that people watch today, and that is Invaders from Mars. Hmm. Let's get to the actors, and I think that the success of the film does rest on the shoulders of four people, and that's Conrad Veidt, Sabu, Rex Ingram, and then Miles Mallison, who plays the daughtery <laughs> caliph who has all the toys. What did you think of the acting? Conrad Veidt would certainly steals many of his scenes, not overdoing it as the villain, but certainly enjoying himself as the bad guy. There's one scene where, because he's after the princess, as you know, everyone is, and he says, I have magic that could make you fall in love with me, but I want you to do it on your own. I'm, I'm not going to con you. I'm not going to magic you into falling in love with me, which he then does later anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> that, that was a little strange. 
but he's really good, I thought. Super engaged. Enjoy that they saved money on the magic in that you don't ever see him doing the magic. It just kind of happens. He stands and holds his hands up, and then you see the effect of whatever spell he's casting, and a lot of work with his shadow, which I thought was very clever. June Dupre and John Justin just fine as the two leads. Not overly exciting, either of them. I think Cebu was great. Very engaging, very entertaining. Action-packed. Hey, oh, I'm swinging across this crevice. I'm going to ride this zip line. I'm going to do some sword fighting, and I'm going to sing this song about wanting to be a sailor. Miles Miles said, oh, look at all these toys I have. Which, again, he almost feels like a character who wandered in from a different movie, which is fine. At that point, you need something to break it up a little bit. A guy who's very into his toys, which Jafar knows, he brings this guy a new toy. He could probably walk out with his daughter. Conrad Veidt is German. He was becoming a major actor in Berlin in the early 30s, but Hitler was coming to power. He married a Jewish actress. When Goebbels came out with this statement you had to sign that stated that you were not Jewish because if you were Jewish, then you weren't going to be allowed to work in the film industry or any industry. He said he was Jewish. He wasn't. At that point, he fled Germany, came to Britain and then the U.S. Once war broke out, especially, he rather enjoyed playing bad guys, playing Nazis, because he thought that would be part of the war effort, playing these terrible people. Villainizing them. Right. And perhaps today, people really into film and and great films. One of his famous earliest films is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, a silent film. But most people will know him from Casablanca, where he plays the German officer who comes in to the city looking for Victor Laszlo. Sabu was an Indian actor who was discovered by Robert Flaherty while he was doing a semi-documentary in India. I'm not sure exactly who got the idea that Sabu could be made into a star. I mean, Vincent Corda, in many ways, was the one who recognized him as someone that he could make into a star in movies. He's very charismatic. Yeah, he is. Most people probably know him now from the original version of The Jungle Book. After the war, they didn't really have much use for him for some reason. He wasn't connecting with the audience. There's no one around who was trying to keep him as a star. He did Black Narcissus. He had become a U.S. citizen. He died relatively young in 1960. He did try to go back and make a film in India, but they said no, they wouldn't let him be in this Bollywood film. And if he had, maybe he could have had a new career there. And then Rex Ingram is one of the top black actors of that period. He's in movies like Green Pastures, where he plays God and Stormy Weather and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And then this one. And you're right, he has this booming preacher's voice. Mm-hmm. And he does steal the show. He is a guy enjoying being a genie. Yes. Of course, the movie is very well known for its special effects. And what do you think of the special effects? Cheesy and over the top and absolutely perfect for the movie. I think they're great. I really do. It was state-of-the-art at the time. This was the first time a blue screen separation process was employed. They used a variation on the existing traveling mat process, which became standard and is sometimes even used today. Like I said, the scene where Boo is encountering this giant genie where, yes, he's superimposed and the blue screen technology used to separate him when they're on the screen together, but then the close-ups on Sabu where he's dealing with a large, I don't know, foam foot? It looked foot? wooden to me, but I don't Wait. know. <laughs> some, some sort of crafted foot in order to give him a practical effect to interact with. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. If you don't expect them to be state-of-the-art CGI, they're a lot of fun. And then there's the music. Yeah, let's talk about that. My first impression was, wow, there's so much music in this, and it won't stop. It's just constant. Which, again, nothing wrong with that. It's fine. What struck me the most, and this might be kind of odd to say, I had to look up who did the music for the 1999 Brendan Fraser Mummy, and it's Jerry Goldsmith. I felt like Jerry Goldsmith had a 
either seen this or was heavily influenced by this or something else like this because I could hear this in some of that music. And it wouldn't be the least surprising to me. Nicholas Rosa was the one who did the music. He's one of the great Hollywood composers. He's probably is best known for Ben Hur. Mm-hmm. He also did movies like Spellbound and Double Indemnity. He did a lot of the big epics as well, like El Cid and Quo Vadis, things of that nature. But he's one of the greats. It wouldn't in the least surprise me that he would highly influence film composers. This movie, I don't know if I would refer to it as one of the classic epics, but it certainly is in that vein. And I think the music gives it part of that vibe. It was constant. It was probably too much music. I could have used less, but it was wonderfully done. The overuse of music is probably one of the most common issues with movies up until maybe the 60s. Mm-hmm. And you do sort of say, okay, we got the point. It almost feels like once they shifted from silent movies to regular movies, and I feel like the acting is this way too, just after they make the transition. It's been 10 years plus at this time, that vibe of in the silent movies, you got to have music the whole time. The music has to be going constantly. We don't need that anymore. (laughs) And some of the acting is overly big. You got to be big with the acting because they can't hear us speaking. Guys, we can actually hear you speaking now, so maybe dial down the acting a little bit. But it is a common complaint of music, of films during that period, and I certainly can't argue with it. But you did mention the songs. Yes. And there were three songs. I read that at some point during production, the film was actually being written as a musical. It just didn't, didn't turn out that way. But there were other songs were written. And there are recordings of some surviving. Apparently, one verse of Rex Ingram singing a song written for the genie. But then in the end, I guess they didn't decide to keep it as a musical. I suspect making it a musical would have probably slowed it down a bit. Yeah, I did look up the woman who was doing the singing where the princess is on her swing. I don't even know what else to call that sequence. The scene exists in order to have this song. But Adelaide Hall, who was apparently a huge figure in the Harlem Renaissance, a big jazz singer and entertainer, it was very interesting to see that song, which again, I felt like probably not necessary for the story, but interesting to see it. We talked a bit in Lady Hawk about perhaps some sort of deeper meaning or metaphor. I think there could be one here too. I mean, one of the things about fantasies, especially when I get feedback on screenplays, and I often get a lot of fantasies where I'm going, I don't know why you're writing this story. There's nothing really there. It's just elves and dwarfs and people fighting each other, going on some sort of arbitrary journey. You need something more. There are often metaphors for what's going on in the world, sometimes intentional, sometimes not. Some of the more famous ones are things like The Lord of the Rings was written at the time of World War II, and you can see a lot of influence that on it. Dune is a metaphor for the Middle East and oil. Game of Thrones is a rehash of the Hundred Years. There's something to ground it all. And this I thought was interesting, and I'm not saying it was done purposely. This was being made just as war was breaking out, or most people knew that there was going to be war. And while it was being made, Germany did attack Poland, which means that Britain had declared war on Germany. So we hear this Grand Vizier who is a German accent. He's not Middle Eastern, but he has this German accent, (laughs) who is trying to gain power and rule the world. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if that also affected the audience. Even subliminally, to read into that or get that vibe or, yeah... What is it about fantasy films? Why do people like them so much? Oh, escapism on the uh, purest level, right? I think that fantasy as a genre is not one where anybody is 
overly lukewarm about it. I feel like people either really enjoy fantasy films or really don't care for fantasy films. And there might be casual fans here and there, but it can be a genre that it can be polarizing. But it is escapism fair in its most pure. Because it's such a, a wide genre, you can have subgenres inside of it. You can have more sci-fi fantasy. You can have a horror fantasy, a romance fantasy, comedy fantasy movie. And I think all of that plays well within a setting. Because it can be so widely defined, it gives you a lot of freedom within it as a filmmaker, if that's the genre you're looking to break into. With that, here's some more information about the film. It made over $1 million at the box office. I don't know how much it cost to make, but I think it was a huge hit. It mm-hmm. was a huge hit in France. Though I keep trying to figure out, well, when did Germany take over France? Because I don't think they would have let us. <laughs> we saw in France once Journey came in, but Georges Perenel won the Academy Award for Cinematography. Vincent Cordo won for Art Direction, and Lawrence W. Butler and Jack Whitney for Special Effects. And I said it was marking the first use of the manual blue screen technique. Nicholas Rosa was also nominated for Original Music Score. This was the first for British Film at the Academy Awards. This was the year of Rebecca and the Grapes of Wrath. So those were two of the big films at the time. When filming began in the U.S., the stricter censorship codes of the Hayes office came into play. One of the most obvious differences, apparently, between the scenes shot in the U.K. and those that were shot in the U.S. is that the tops of the actresses' costumes were buttoned up all the way (laughs) by the Hayes office. If you want to figure out which scenes were done in the U.S. and which were done in Britain, they say it's usually easier to identify by the costumes on the women. And Rex Ingram is one of the few actors to have played both God and the Devil in movies. He played God in The Green Pastures and the Devil in Cabin in the Sky. With that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. The two, I think The Princess Bride, if you haven't already seen it, you should. It's kind of the fantasy romance element with a little bit of comedy thrown in, exceptional cast, really well done. So I think that fits with Lady Hawk, makes a lot of sense. And then I think Pan's Labyrinth is a really good example of a fantasy-type movie that has slipped under the radar. Maybe a lot of people either didn't see when it first came out or maybe missed. So I think that's another good one. And I'll mention two. First is Raoul Walsh's 1924 silent film, The Thief of Baghdad, which was a vehicle for Douglas Fairbanks. It was a huge hit, and I think it is supposed to be his favorite movie. It's just a lot of fun. And then Jean Gacteau's 1946 beautiful and elegant fantasy La Belle and La Bette, or Beauty and the Beast, which revolves around a beautiful young woman who takes her father's place as the prisoner of a mysterious beast who wishes to marry her. So what is next? What should we be looking for? For me, uh, you can head over to my site, check some additional movie reviews. I <laughs> just watched A Quiet Place for the first time in order to prep go seeing A Quiet Place 2, so I should have a review of that up. I reviewed Wrath of Man, so that's up on my site. Now, you can check that out at jwardadventures.blogspot.com. Great. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and screenplay consultant, so check out my Howard Kasner Screenplay Consultation Facebook page. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I talk about issues relating to screenwriting and movies. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror short stories. 
I have also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rentings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, also on Amazon. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with film enthusiast Cameron Kanaki, where we discussed Almost Famous and Murmur of the Heart, two films about young teens coming of age with a little help from their mothers. The next podcast will be with blogger and film enthusiast Thomas Stoneham Judge, The Hitman's Bodyguard, and The Gauntlet. Both films about someone trying to get a witness safely to a court to testify. And with that, Jeanette, I very much want to thank you for being a guest on my show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was super fun. (laughs) 